There is no better sinner than a young saint. Afra Ben. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is the forest. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a Silver Linings Playcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Silver Linings Playcast. I'm your host, Jamie Ward, and as far as I know, this is the only podcast solely devoted to talking about Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. It's March 17th, 2022, and that means it is St. Patrick's Day of this year, but guess what? We are not going to go the traditional uh, hacky route that's probably expected, where we do a deep dive into St. Patrick's history... Uh, the history of St. Patrick, uh, who I believe was not officially a saint. I believe he was like a... Um, I, okay, so I'm not... I am tying this in, but I don't want this to be official, uh, officially on the record as history because I'm not a historian, right? So I believe, to the best of my understanding, that St. Patrick of St. Patrick's Day acclaim, his sainthood was akin to Colonel Sanders' Colonelhood. Um, I believe it was like an honorary title. I realize there is a lot of uh, sort of discrepancy in the history, in the mythology of St. Patrick. There was a lot of the lore and history of Ireland was lost, and so it was it was passed down by word of mouth in written, you know, in sort of hidden histories. So sometimes it's not always the most historically accurate in the sense of other other cultures. But I would actually like to contest that in some ways it is extremely accurate because it, it means it's passed down person to person, but it is subject a little bit to the telephone effect. Um, like I said, we're not going to get into that today uh, because we probably did it last year or two years ago. We've, we haven't been going for two years fully Yet we're at episode 91. This is episode 91, which means we've been actually recording for 90 weeks because we did have that special week where we had two episodes in one week. And if you're not counting the multiple weeks in which I had breakdowns, I was not able to post actual episodes. But uh, yeah, so we don't want to take a whole episode because we can't, we can't stop for every holiday. There's just too much Silver Linings Playbook and the Silver Linings Playbook content to get into that we don't have time to do deep history lessons on every holiday that May passes, right? Like we might, we might have, uh, you know, taken a whole episode. We could have talked about Mardi Gras because I was here in Louisiana, and that is a big holiday. It's like the Louisiana St. Patrick's Day, or you know, St. Patrick's Day being today. And I was talking about how how the mythology of St. Patrick is is a little contested. It's contested by different parties. And part of the reason is that if you look into the history of Ireland, uh, there, there was, you know, the colonization from England. Uh, and a lot of times when England colonized other countries, kidnapped them, captured them, took them over, invaded them, you had an effort by the rulers of England to wipe out the history of whatever country they were taking over so that these countries didn't have an identity that they could fall back on. It made them harder for them to rebel. It made them sort of more dependent on 
England as their source of rule. It's very interesting thinking about all these things while I'm watching Game of Thrones. We are some, I think we just started into season five. And from my understanding, it was, it's loosely based on sort of structured a little bit like the War of the Roses, which was, uh, you know, everybody knows the famous, very long battle. I guess there was actually a hundred, there was several wars of roses. I might be thinking of hundred years wars. I'm not a historian. I'm not, let's actually jump out of all of this because we're going to knock something out today that we've been meaning to for a very long time. We are going to do number uh, movies 18 through 1 on the countdown of movies that critics were not a fan of and audiences loved. And then we're going to get into why Silver Linux Playbook is probably the number one uh, version of that. Number 18, the 2009 movie Old Dogs. That is probably the one we left on. And I think we actually did that one in the previous one. Uh, no, actually, we had to have gotten to at least 17 because uh, uh, 17 is Saw, the 2008 movie starring Scott, Scott Patterson, Costa, Mandalore, and Tobin Bell. And I remember talking about that because I remember talking about Scott Patterson because Scott Patterson was from Gilmore Girls. I remember talking about that, Gilmore Girls being one of my favorite shows of all time. It was a show that was actually known for having like the most words per minute for a while. Um, like the, the amount of dialogue in it. Uh, the, the characters just talked a lot more than they said just more words per minute than a lot of shows. And it was created by uh, executive producer Amy Sherman Palladino and her husband Daniel Palladino. So I guess her name was Amy Sherman and then she took the hyphenated Sherman Palladino. The really cool thing I think about the Gilmore Girls is uh, it was one of my favorite shows for a long time. I'm not going to pretend like I was a fan of it when it first came out. I didn't watch it when it first came out. I never heard about it. I really fell in love with Gilmore Girls when it started streaming on Netflix. When Netflix launched their streaming service, I think they got a lot of CW shows on their network so they could just fill up with a lot of content. Of course, people were, were binging The Office and 30 Rock and a lot of the NBC shows. And I think, I think NBC... Shows from that era, uh, the era of show that was was brought onto the streaming services right when Netflix started, right when Hulu started, were sort of some of the best recent TV, especially for millennial age people like me, Gen Z and Gen uh, Xers that have watched. And the it's interesting if you look at sort of the characteristic of the kind of show that different networks like to cultivate. I think NBC during that period was really known for uh, for their sitcom. Their Thursday night sitcom lineup has been a, a just steadfast uh, icon of, of the comedy landscape, the comedy TV landscape for a very long time. You sort of know them for their classic sitcoms uh, in, in my generation. ABC had a lot of the reality shows, but also like the family shows. Um, they had shows like uh, medical dramas, Grey's Anatomy, 
I believe was an ABC show. Uh, Shonda Shonda Rhimes really had partnered with ABC, having Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder. I never saw How to Get Away with Murder, but I, based on Grey's Anatomy and Scandal, which were fantastic. Uh, I believe Grey's Anatomy might still be going on, though. I don't know. I'm basing this all off the first three seasons of Grey's Anatomy. But, okay, so so NBC was really known. And so Gilmore Girls was, it was partially comfort TV. It was quirky. It was esoteric. There was a lot of dialogue, so it helps you keep engaged. It's it's pretty simple. There's it's It's, you know, got your typical sort of, Young adult coming of age romance drama, but it's it's real quirky. That's the thing I like about Gilmore Girls, the characters, and the town. The town of Stars Hollow, Connecticut, is really built with its own mythology, with its own history. Even though it is a fake town, you really feel like it is a character because it is given so much character descriptions. The characters are, have very strong voices. You have these very unique people that populate the town. And there was something just overall, I've always loved about it. Just the, the feel of when you watch it. And when I say it's comfort TV, it's often one of those things I would just fall asleep to. I probably, I've, I've definitely, I don't want to say I've seen every episode. I want to say I've had every episode running in a room while I was present, mostly watching it, right? The interesting thing was, like I said, okay, so I first got introduced to um, Gilmore Girls uh, back when Netflix started their streaming service, when they were still doing the DVD rentals, but they sort of were, were posturing themselves to revolutionized the streaming world. The reason I'm bringing up the time discrepancy is that I sort of jokingly, I decided that it was very similar in feel and sort of mise-en-scene, mise-en-scene. I, I don't know how to pronounce the French, uh, uh, but just in, in a sense, okay, in the same way where I talk about Silver Linings Playbook up in the air, cinematically feel like similar movies, even though thematically they're extremely different. Or maybe, maybe I have that backwards. And then Nick also added Pet Cemetery to this list too. Um, and I hypothetically have the Descendants on there, even though I haven't seen it in a long time since it came out. I always felt there was some type of connection, some type of similarity between a show like Gilmore Girls and the show Twin Peaks, the 1990s CBS high strangeness murder mystery detective-y uh, neo-noir, um, I can't even, Twin Peaks. How do you describe Twin Peaks? What genre is Twin Peaks? David Lynch, that is the genre. He gets his own job. Visually spectacular. Because David Lynch is just one of those guys. He was, we, and we should talk about David Lynch at some point. But this is not a podcast about David Lynch. This is a podcast about Silver Linings Playbook and the Silver Linings Playbook. And all things that are concerned with 
those two things. And so, um, you know, that's why. But anyway, the reason it is so neat that I made this observation, <coughs> excuse me, that I made this observation about Twin Peaks and Gilmore Girls is that um, apparently Amy, Sheridan Palladino, and, and Daniel are big Twin Peaks fans. So they actually included not only a lot of references, there is a lot of um, sort of, there, in the very first episode, uh, there is a, a lot of allusion to the show, um, Twin Peaks. They're similar, it's definitely inspired. Twin, Gilmore Girls is a comedy, romantic comedy version to Twin Peaks's uh, Twin Peaks's not romantic comedy. Like I said, we're having a problem figuring out what genre it is. Um, so I guess actually, okay, let's take a, let's take a tiny, tiny sidetrack. We're gonna get through the other 17 movies. I promise, I thought it was gonna be funny and just knock them out really quick. But I, this is one of my favorite things of all time to discuss because there is such a small percentage of people that would ever care about the connections. I mean, not a small percentage because you can find whole websites on them. And so we're going to discuss something from uh, MamaMia.com, an Australian website that actually is talking about the connection between Twin Peaks and Gilmore Girls, even though... Uh, it's not the only one either, but still, it's still it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a nuanced thing that not everybody's gonna care about. All right, so one of the main things is they had a lot of, a lot of the Twin Peaks cast has cameos on Gilmore Girls, and one of the most amazing things is too one of them, this is so cool, <laughs> one of the characters from Twin Peaks. Uh, has two different cameos, and what I mean by two different cameos is plays two different characters on Gilmore Girls, and they're not even insignificant characters either. Uh, so let's see. Um, you have uh, Ray Wise, who was Leland Palmer in Twin Peaks, and he plays Jack Smith on Gilmore Girls. You have, I can't say all these people's names correctly, and I apologize to all of them, because uh, one, they probably don't listen to this, but also because it is, uh, you know, I just, I like to get people's names right. Kathleen Wilhoyt as uh, Gwyn Morton on Twin Peaks, and Liz Danes on uh, Gilmore Girls. Liz Danes. I th is that Luke Danes' sister? I think. Um, I don't remember. Like I said, so this is, this is the really interesting one. Um, let's see. Uh... Lauren and uh, Sherilyn Flynn played Audrey Horn on Twin Peaks. Um, she plays uh, both... Wait, I don't remember these off the top of my head. And I should, too. I should know these because I actually made a YouTube video where I took all the characters. Okay, well, anyway, the it doesn't matter. Actually, um... It doesn't matter who was on both shows because if you're interested, there's a YouTube video. I will put a link to that in the show notes where I did a, I edited intro to Gilmore Girls where I redubbed it with the Twin Peaks 
intro music and I listed all the characters in the credits. Um, anyway, the, sh the, the two shows are very similar. Blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares. I know I care least of all, right? Did I even mention who the quote was by at the beginning? Yeah, I think I did. Um, Alfra Ben. Ben, again, another name that I can't pronounce, but so cool when I found out. I love this quote. There is no sinner like a young saint. Of course, we're bringing that up because it's St. Patrick's Day, but we're not going to go into the mythology of St. Patrick's Day. We covered that before. Um, but So she was a, a playwright, a writer, but I guess best known for playwrights, as for writing plays and poetry. Uh, she lived from December 1640 to April 1689. She was born in Canterbury, England. And what's really cool about her was she was one of the first English women to earn a living writing. So she is seen as a very groundbreaking writer. Uh, she did a whole bunch of different plays and just basically wrote everything. Number 16, the 1989 film See No Evil, Hear No Evil. It starred Richard Pryor, Jane Wilder, uh, Joan Severance. It was rated on Rotten Tomatoes audience score. 6.6 out of 10. IMDb audience score, 6.8 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes critic store, score 3.2. Gross, it's this domestic box office uh, was $46,910,000. I don't know how much it was made. I haven't seen this movie, but um, I think it is definitely one of those. So I, I know I... I get really sad about this because I think uh, a couple things. Richard Pryor is one of the best comedians of all time. It's just, just uh, that's one of the facts. I'm not he, he might not be the best, but he was definitely amongst the best. He would be in anybody's conversation about being groundbreaking, about being funny, about being still relevant. Um, uh, you also have Gene Wilder, who. Uh, one of my favorite comedic actors of all time. He, unfortunately, was in a bunch of movies that were not the most popular movies, but I think that doesn't really say anything about him. He is a wonderful guy. And it's, so, so it's one of those things I think it's almost too perfect. You put these two amazing people together hoping you have like a, a can't-fail project, and just sometimes it doesn't work for critics. But also, we've discussed about how comedy doesn't always relay itself to getting the kind of ratings in the same way from critics who were sort of pretentious looking for, like, a, oh, the same guy that reviewed Silver Linings Playbook and that other thing, probably, you know, he's probably alive and already rating movies in 1989, and rated this one. I don't I don't know because I haven't seen it either. It might be terrible. It might be great. 6.6 to 6.8 I think is actually very high for a comedy. Right? Because it is a low score overall. But I mean, if, I think if you give it the, the curve, the comedy curve that we all talk about, that that's one of the higher middle range scores than a lot of the other ones. Okay, so number 15, 2016 film, Collateral Beauty. Starring Will Smith, Edward Norton, Kate Winslet. Rotten Tomato audience score of 7.2 out of 10. IMDb audience score 6.8 out of 10. Rotten Tomato critic score 3.6 out of 10. Domestic box office 30.98 million dollars. 
which is about seven, six, six million less than, uh, no, 16, 16 million less than See No Evil, Hear No Evil, and it was made 25 years later. So, good, again, more, more credit to See No Evil, Hear No Evil. Um, I don't know what Collateral Beauty is. The, when I see the word Collateral, the first movie I think about is Collateral, Collateral, but that's not what this movie is. So, clearly it's not. Even though, so if, if, am I remembering this right? No, I'm, I'm mistaking Collateral. Collateral was the Tom Cruise movie where he plays a hitman, I think. Right? A Michael Mann film. And I mistake that with Miami Vice which was Jamie Foxx and Colin Farrell. I don't know why. I think they must have come out around the same time. I don't remember. Fireproof, 2008 film. That comes in at number 14. is Kirk Cameron, Aaron Bethia, and Ken Bevel. Rotten Tomato audience, 8.2. IMDb audience, 6.6. Rotten Tomato critic, 4.3. Now, here's an interesting discrepancy we have between Rotten Tomato audience 8.2 and IMDb audience 6.6. I feel like that's a pretty high level of discrepancy between those two, which could mean that you have uh, have audience members that this film is clearly marketed to really trying to boost the rating on Rotten Tomatoes because I believe Rotten Tomatoes might be the, the, the highest level when you cross section the level of influence Versus the ease of getting something posted on there. IMDb is very easy to. I have reviewed a bunch of films. So part of these things are my fault. In fact, I don't think I've actually reviewed Silver Linings Playbook. Number 13, Death Wish 3. It was a 1985 film. It was the uh, trequel. I don't know if that's actually a word. From the original Death Wish film. This starred uh, Charles Bronson. Deborah Rafflin and Ed Lautner. Um, and it got 6.2 out of 10 on Rotten Tomatoes audience, 5.9 IMDb audience, and 2.4 Rotten Tomatoes. Seeing it's the third in an action movie sequel, not really surprised, but also same as the comedy and romance. People that want them think they're fun. Number 12. Facing the Giants, a 2006 film, Alex Kendrick, Shannon Fields, Jason McLeod. I believe this was a Christian film as well. Rotten Tomatoes audience, 7.8. IMDb audience, 6.7. Rotten Tomato critics, 4.1. This is interesting. Again, we have a bigger discrepancy between the Rotten Tomato audience and IMDb audience. Just like we had with Fireproof, that had 8.2 Rotten Tomato audience and 6.6 IMDb audience. Meaning, is uh, our religious audience more likely to give you a higher score on Rotten Tomato, but less likely to come support your film on IMDb? Interesting. That is an interesting thing to think about. I don't know if we can actually make an assumption on that based on a sample size of two. But I think, you know what, we also can, because that's 100% of the two movies that we have talked about. And it comprises about 40% of the movies we've gotten to on the list. 
for today in this episode. Number 11, Grind, a 2003 film starring Adam Brody, Joey Kern, Mike Vogel. Rotten audience score, Rotten Tomato audience score, 7. IMDb audience score, 6. Interesting, those are both full numbers, too. Rotten Tomato critics, 3.1. So I'm wondering if maybe it didn't have that many reviews to get a full full digit score for both of those instead of having point something because a lot of these things have point something. Num okay, now we're we're in the top or bottom 10 depending on how you're going to look at it. Number 10. An American Crime, 2007. I'm going off the USA Today list. This I'm just reading right here. Uh, it says starring Ellen Page, Haley McFarlane, and Nick Searcy. Uh, I, um, the the actor Ellen Page has renamed himself Elliot Page. So out of respect, we will uh, refer to them by their uh, name that they go by now: Elliot Page, Haley McFarlane. Nick Searcy. I want to. I'm going to venture into dangerous podcasting territory here, being like, "How do you retroactively apply that?" I'd be very curious. Uh, Nick and I have had very interesting talks about that. Why do they even break up like actor or actress categories at the award shows by gender? Um, I I don't know. I'm very curious. I, I would love to have a discussion about that. Upcoming too, because I think there's there's reasons why. Like it's an attempt to reward the people. I have my own theories about how Academy Awards should be handed out. Um, I don't know if this was nominated for any me for any awards though. And with a Rotten Tomatoes critic rating of four out of ten, I'm guessing it wasn't. They did not even release the domestic box office take on this article. It just says NA. For not applicable. Number nine, Waiting for Forever, a 2010 film starring Rachel Bilson, Tom Sturridge, and Richard Jenkins. It got a Rotten Tomato audience score of six, IMDb audience score of six, and a Rotten Tomato critic score of 2.3. 2.3 is really low for this. And domestic box office, it made $30,000. That's almost like not making money. I bet they lost money on this, which is something that happens. That is making $30,000, making $30,000 back for a movie. We have to do some math on that. $30,000 for a movie. How much do you think movie tickets are right now? Well, let's say this was back in 2010. Let's say people are not going to an expensive theater. All right. I'm going to give these people all the credit in the world they can. And this could have been a small release film. It could have been indie. It could have been um, uh, released, uh, had a limited release. It could be a straight to video. But we're just we're just making a lot of assumptions here, and it's not liable because I, like I said, um, good for all these people. I'm proud they've done more in movies than I have, so it's not liable or slander. Uh, I'm also not a lawyer, so it might be either of those things. But I hope it's not. I mean this in the best way. I'm actually going to do some math in their favor. Right now, I want to see how many people. So let's let's estimate that the average cost of a movie ticket in 2010, which it wasn't, but we're going to estimate it was five dollars. Let's say that all that money came from ticket sales and it didn't come from any other sources 
like investing or no, no, because box office would be a reference to how much money they made on ticket sales, right? Okay, so let's divide thirty thousand dollars by five dollar ticket price. We all know too that the average movie ticket price was not five dollars in two thousand ten. Once you divide that up, that would mean that six thousand people saw it. Six thousand people. Let's say that that was evenly distributed by all the fifty states, right? So six thousand. Divided by 50 states means that 120 people saw it in each state. 120. That means only 60 couples, if, if all couples win. So let's do a little more math on this. Let's say that every state has two big cities with a movie theater. Now we're estimating again because most, most states probably have more. Uh, you know, like I'll go off of Georgia because I know it best. It has Atlanta, which is a big metropolitan area. It has Columbus. It has Savannah. Um, that's three. But we're going to assume that each state has two cities with a movie theater charging $5 a ticket, and people are excited to go see a movie, right? So we know, not accurate at all, not accurate at all, but we're going to take this, divide it by two. That's, that's 60. That's, uh, wait, I forgot what I'm even doing this math for. Um, we're, we're, uh, we're, oh, what a, it's not very good. It's terrible. It's, oh, I feel bad for, I hope, no, I hope like, I hope they did fine. Clearly they're fine. Clearly they're doing fine. Like, I don't know. I haven't heard of them, uh, in a long time. Um. Maybe, I hope that didn't kill their career. Number eight, A Little Bit of Heaven, a 2011 film starring Kate Hudson, Gail Garcia Bernal, and Kathy Bates. Um, so that's like that's a respectable cast. I recognize those names. Um, I think Kathy Bates is a pretty respected uh, actress. Um, she's been in a lot of really good films. Um, Kate Hudson, uh, that's... Goldie Hawn's daughter, um, who has been in, I, d I don't know what the, the average, like, rating of the movies she's been in, but, um, there have been some pop hits, the equivalent of pop music, right? Okay, so A Little Bit of Heaven, 2011 movie, Rotten Tomato audience score of 6.6 .6 out of 10. IMDB audience score, 6.3 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes critics rating, 2 point, ooh, Oh, this one made $10,000. This one made one... Th what was going on in 2010, 2011? That, that movie made 30000 This one made ten. This The math will be easier on this one. Let's try the math again on this one. Because 10000 is a lot easier to, to do, right? Okay, so... $10,000 divided amongst 50 states. That means it made $200 a state. Divided amongst the two cities, that means it made $100 per city. Let's say all those $100 went to ticket sales at one movie theater. If we're dividing it by the $5 ticket price, that means 20 people went to see it. In each theater. Uh, that would be weird. I, I'm, again, not slander liable. Do you know how excited I would be if I released a movie and 20 people from each 
theater from two different cities in 50 different states went to see my movie, I'd be ecstatic. I can't get 20 people to come see me at the punchline. I think the biggest amount of people I ever had, I drew about eight. About eight, and I think four of them were in one family. Seven. Seven, maybe. Seven people. And number seven on the list, God's Not Dead, a 2014 film. Shane Harper, Kevin Sorbo, David A.R. White. Rotten Tomato audience score is 7.8. IMDb audience, 4.8. Rotten Tomato critic score, 2.7. Domestic box office, 60 million. Again, like the other two, Facing the Giants and Fireproof. Uh, I think because Kevin Sorbo, uh, I believe, does that kind of stuff. And again, and look, this is right in line with us and our theory that the Rotten Tomato audience score will be higher than the IMDb audience score for Christian films. Number six, Grandma's Boy, a 2006 film. I remember this one was popular. This one, like, I'm not, I'm not saying it was the greatest movie ever. I don't, I didn't see it again. But wait, I might also be thinking of a different movie. I, I think I am thinking of a different movie. Uh, 2006 movie, Grandma's Boy, starring Alan Covert, Linda Cardellini, and Shirley Jones. Rotten Tomato score seven point four. IMDb seven. Rotten Tomato critics three point six. I think this was one of those uh, like stoner teen gross out comedy. I don't know what the specific comedy genre rating would be. Um, sort of like a jackass movie. Not a not an actual live action movie, but you know what I'm talking about. Number five, the 2015 movie War Room. Priscilla C. Shearer, T.C. Stallings, Karen Abercrombie. Rotten Tomato audience score 8.8. Rotten Tomato 8.8 from the audience. A IMDb 6.4 out of 10. Rotten Tomato Critic 4.4. Domestic box office 67,790,000. Don't recognize any of those actors or actresses. I might even go on a limb and say War Room might have been a Christian film just based on the, the statistical trends that we are seeing now. What are what are the things that you can tell a movie was made with a religious audience in mind based solely on the empirical evidence we're getting from the, the respective ratings, the discrepancy from the Rotten Tomato IMDb rating, and the domestic box office. This falls in line. Maybe we'll look it up next time. Number four, Big Mamas, like father, like son. I think this was, I, th I think this was Big Mama's house sequel. It was, it was a follow-up. It's, it's not on this list, which was copy and pasted from yesterday. It just says Big Mama's, uh, colon, like father, like son, a 2011 film. It's a Martin Lawrence film, Brandon T. Jackson, Jessica Lucas. So it, I think it is definitely like, that big mamas um but uh so you have here this is interesting brandon t jackson brandon t jackson was in tropic thunder too and he also showed up to do comedy at the punchline very early on he was one of the first special guests that ever sort of showed up and we were all like oh wow that's awesome there's a hollywood because tropic thunder had just come out around that time too um, so we are like, that is pretty amazing. Hold on. We are going to some awesome stats. So hold the phone. This just in. 
This is amazing. Uh, we got some more information. Katie did some research on one of these films that we went over, and I, I think we need to dive into this a little more. Okay, so we were just talking about the 2010 film, which was number nine on our list called Waiting for Forever. So, and, and so what we had, the information we had from the USA Today article it was a 2010 film starring Rachel Bilson, Tom Sturridge, and Richard Jenkins. Rotten Tomato audience, 6 out of 10. IMDb audience, 6 out of 10. Rotten Tomato critic, 2.3 out of 10. Domestic box, 30,000. Right? And that was, it was a little shocking to me. So Katie did some math on it. And we were, the, first off, the estimates I was trying to get to were, um, you know, that if it grows 30,000 divided by 50 states, that's 600 per state, 600 divided by $5, assuming low, low end, 120 tickets per state, right? So then that's 60 per theater if you say that it's released in two theaters. That's that's saying they all came to one showing too, which was probably not likely. Okay, I want to go in depth a little more because then we got fascinated with what this movie actually was. And there is updated, if so if you go to Rotten Tomatoes score, and again, not... Not slandering, not libeling. We just want to talk about what this is. This is facts on the internet, on a on a pretty reliable uh, database. So the updated, more current, because these were at the time of the article writing. The stats look actually worse when you have even more retrospective. Okay, there's 19... Rotten Tomato, Tomato Meter approved reviewer reviews, 19 of them. They give it an aggregate score of 5%, which is much lower than the 2.3 as of the writing of the USA Today article. 5%. That would be 0.5. That would be 0.5. The audience, the Rotten Tomato audience score has now downgraded it to 42%, which is lower that would be a 4.2 as of the time of this article. We had it rated at uh, 6. Um, so it has dropped off. It's, it's technically not wrong for this list because, yes, we are discussing movies that critics didn't like and audiences, well, liked more. They still like it more, but I think it's fallen out of the review of range of movies that people like. Here's the thing, if you like this movie, you almost, you you might also like, according to Rotten Tomatoes, Motherhood with Uma Thurman, which has a 20% critic rating and a 16% audience. The um, Love, Wedding, Marriage, which has 0% critic and 28% audience. The Chaperone, starring Triple H, which has 29% <laughs> Critics and 43% audience, um, which, okay, oh, oh, so this is interesting, because <laughs> uh, The Chaperone is uh, starring Triple H, and then it is followed up, let me check on this, this is correct, so the next movie, if you like The Chaperone, you might like Legendary, which has an 18% critic rating, 59% audience rating, and stars John Cena, which, okay, so actually, that's that's going to be funny. So the critics like Triple H's movie. The audience prefers John Cena's movie. Oh, and then the third 
one coming after this, the greatest. Uh, it looks like I'm. Is it? It's either a movie or about Muhammad Ali. How are all these movies? Anyway, okay, so let's let's deep dive deeper a little bit into what this movie is because this is an absolute cinematic aberration. So I just had a discussion about the fact that these movies are rated solo. Oh, also like <laughs> the movie Solo, uh, you know the Han Solo movie that was one of the least well-reviewed, um, and I'm saying that relative to a Star Wars film. You know what? I, actually, I don't know. We should probably look at the Star Wars films as their whole separate rating system universe. Actually, you know what? This is pretty incredible. I went to go check out Solo, a Star Wars story, on Google, and according to IMDb, it has a 6.9 out of 10. So, 9 points. Get it? No, okay, never mind. 69% on Rotten Tomatoes. And Google says that 83% of the people like that movie. So, you know, it, it was one of... I, I wanted to say one of my favorite offshoot Star Wars movies. I mean, clearly I love the character, um... I liked Rogue One even better, but both of them were basically the only two spin-off uh, solo project movies, with Solo being the only solo 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 project, uh, Rogue One being the other solo non-solo project so far. As far as feature films, you have, you have some uh, series, we have some computer animated series. Also, the, the budget of Solo was 275 million. Box office was three, uh, 393.2 million. So it made money. It definitely made money back, probably. I don't know what they wanted on something like that. Because if you spend, if you spend 275 million dollars on something, you probably want to at least double it, but I'm guessing like they even want to more than double it because if you look at the budgets of these films, oh, let's see how much. So we're going to go back to the tale of the tape because I am now on the Wikipedia page for Waiting for Forever. Did I tell you about the rest of the cast too? It is not a bad cast. You have Rachel Bilson, Tom Sturridge, Jamie King, Nikki Bolonsky, Scott McClonwitz, Blythe Danner, Roz, Ryan, Richard Jenkins. I know I butchered a couple of those names. I'm sorry to them. Uh, not Slender Reliable. Uh, the runtime was 94 minutes. United States film in English. Released on February 10th, 2010 in Santa Barbara only. Uh, released around the United States February 4th, 2011. The box office, according to the Wikipedia... Which is, these are pretty accurate because people have to cite other sources, so they're just, you know, they're curating all the information for us. According to the box office on this Wikipedia page, the box office was $25,517. So, it's like everybody that worked on the film got 50 bucks. Uh, the budget, this is the part that blows my mind, the budget of the film was $5 million. <sighs> the budget... Was five? How much 
were that. This is this is the film that I would expect to make back the ratio of what Solo made. Slightly unrelated, but I want to really quick look at the box office and budgets for the Star Wars film films. And we're going to start off with the original Star Wars 4. Star Wars Star Wars 1 Episode 4 A New Hope or as I call it Star Wars which was the cheapest of let's say the nine original uh, trilogy trilogy cubilogy films, right? So the original Star Wars was made for 11 million dollars. So it was made for only uh, 1 million more than twice as much as that other movie. And it made back $775.4 million. And that's $1977. Let's look at uh, Star Wars 2, Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back, which made, it was made for $18 million and it made back $5,380,000. Star Wars 3, Episode 4, Return of the Jedi, was made for $32.5 million and made $475 million. So if you put, if you put into that retrospect, Solo, a Star Wars story, which was made for $275 million and made back $392.92 million, uh, not quite the same level of success. Let's look at... Now, so this is an important one if we're looking at Star Wars, uh, Star Wars 4, Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. The reason that this is sort of an important one to look at, too, is because this has been, after there was a big break, we didn't really know if we were ever going to get more Star Wars movies. We went to go see the original, we went to go see the special editions when they came back to theaters, George Lucas had always talked about doing more, but there was a long time where I think fans really just didn't know if we were ever going to get any more Star Wars movies. And so The Phantom Menace was really the, the movie that like set it on this trajectory of Star Wars is coming back. It's a viable franchise. This is something that can come back from the late 70s, early 80s. So there was a lot of extra excitement around it as well, not just being a Star Wars film. It's not like this was just another sequel, but it was also uh, the revival I mean, it was it was a reboot of a franchise, even though it was a an in sequence boot. You know, right along, it was also a pre boot because it was like the prequel to the originals. Uh, we all understand. I'm not I'm not gonna make those silly jokes about the math. I get it. They were they were done out of order. It's fine. Not not all that funny. People have touched on the humor available to that. Um, so it was made for $115 million. It made back a billion dollars. So it made 10 times what it was made for. Not quite, just under 10 times, but I think that's satisfactory. Uh, what? So this is where... I didn't see any more of the Star Wars movies. Let's see. what uh, Attack of the Clones, Star Wars 2. Um, so Star Wars 5, Episode 2 was made for $115 million, and it made back uh, $650 million. So that, you know, more than doubling. You're, you're four, almost five times the amount of money you made back, which is still good. Uh, 
So episode, uh, no wait, Star Wars 6, episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, was made for 1,013,000 and made back 848.75 million. Okay, so let's see what what uh, made the most. Total, none of them proportion-wise will have made as much as A New Hope Star Wars 1. The total, the biggest box office was uh, Star Wars 8, Episode 8, The Force Awakens? Or is that Star Wars 7, Episode 7? Anyway, production cost was $245 million. It made $2 billion. So that's, that's a lot of money to make off a movie. Star Wars... Uh, eight episode eight, the last Jedi, m- made for three hundred seventeen, made back one billion three hundred thirty-two million, and Star Wars nine, episode nine, the Rise of Skywalker, made for two hundred seventy-five million, made back a billion. Rogue One, a Star Wars story, was made for two hundred million, and that earned a billion. So this is interesting. We're looking back. They they're, they they want to make. I don't know what their threshold is, but they're definitely you're definitely seeing a success. in if they're making back ten times what they make them for, so that's why I think when you look at Solo, a Star Wars story which was made for two hundred and seventy five million, and it made back three hundred and ninety two million, that's disappointing to them. Proportionally, even though, ooh, yeah, it's the lowest ratio, even though I, uh, I just want to say, I would be fine with that. If I had made that, I would be, but I guess they canceled the future solo series projects because of that. Uh, so, yeah. Number seven, we did God Dead. Number six, we did Grandma's Boy. Number five, War Room, we did. Number four, we were on Big Mama's House. Number three, Out Cold, a 2001 film starring Flex Alexander, David Denman, A.J. Cook. Rotten Tomatoes, seven. IMDb audience, 6.3. Rotten Tomatoes, critics, 2.9. Box office, 13.9 million. Number two, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, 2005. Starring Kimberly Ellis, Steve Harris, Tyler Perry. Rotten Tomato audience, 8 out of 10. IMDb audience, 5.8 out of 10. Rotten Tomato critic rating, 3.9 out of 10. Domestic box office, 5 million. And the number one, the number one film that, ooh, ooh, wasn't even thinking about it today. But what a day to announce it. Can you guess it? Can you guess it? I'm going to remind you, it's St. Patrick's Day. Can you guess it? The number one film, or the number 50th film, that audiences seem to love and critics seem to hate. The 1990 film, set in Boston, Massachusetts. Starring Willem Dafoe, Sean Patrick Flannery, and Norman Reedus, The Boondock Saints. Audience... Rotten Tomato rating of 8.4 out of 10. IMDb audience rating 7.8 out of 10. Rotten Tomato critics 4.3 out of 10. Domestic box office 30 million. 
which I think warrants a little bit further investigation. The nineteen ninety film. So so okay, we could I could actually go way into this more. The second one, uh, what? Because so here's the thing I know about it. it's a cult classic. It is. It was directed by Troy Duffy. It was written by Troy Duffy. Um, the stars also uh, uh, David Delarocco and Billy Connolly. Um, this was uh, sort of an important film to me because when I first moved to Boston, it was one of um, a movie that I had never heard of, and one of my friends showed it to me. He had a DVD and brought it over, and it was one of the first movies. And he's like, "Oh, you know what? This is uh, this is super popular around here." Um, and I'd never heard of it and I wasn't expecting a lot and I watched it and it was so fun. It's a super fun movie. Now it's box office was $30,471. It was made on a budget of $6 million. The reception of it was, it's, I guess it wasn't liked when it came out, but it has, okay, so here is it. It's grossed 50 million in domestic video sales. So, fifty million uh, video sales based on a six million budget. You're definitely in original um, Star Wars territory. Not not the original Star Wars, but in the territory of there. You're making back, uh, you know, somewhere between eight to ten times what you wanted. Which now makes me think: Should I go back and look at the discrepancy between the domestic box office take? Versus the video distribution. Now because the, the whole point I was trying to make with this. <clears throat> the budget of Silver Linings Playbook was it was a $21 million movie. And it made back box office $236 million. So that is definitely probably way lower than they were hoping for. They probably wanted to do something like a billion, kind of like Star Wars The Force Awakens, two billion, maybe. Um, I think people just haven't seen this movie enough. They're not counting the multiple times. I and, and to be fair, because I rented it twice from Redbox before I ever watched it, too. I can't believe, so I didn't even plan that, that today... St. Patrick's Day, Boondock Saints was number one. I forgot that. It had taken me so long. But we're also we're also done. So now you can see. I'm not going to drag that out just to be funny. We are almost out of time for this episode. But I saw that we had time to get back in and finish the list off. And, and we're there. The reason I thought the Boondock Saints was so interesting. Oh, this is something else I wanted to talk about. Was, was that there? I think there was a whole documentary about the epic failure of of Troy Duffy's attempt to try to make a sequel to the Boondock Saints. That that he had, the, the Boondock Saints was sort of an initial box office failure, but when it became a cult classic, his idea to make a second one then got funded, and that was a disaster. People love the Boondock Saints. People do not love the Boondock Saints Part 2. Um, it's not called Part 2. I think it's just the Boondock Saints 2. All Saints Day. The Boondock Saints 2 being a 2009 film with a 6.2 on IMDb, 23 on Rotten Tomatoes, 24 uh, on Critics. Made a box office of 10 with a budget of 8 million, which is definitely the wrong direction for where, where you want to be going on something like that. 
I believe there was also, yeah, like I said, there's a whole documentary about everything that went wrong and them trying to film it. I remember that I rented Boondock Saints 2 and didn't watch it. I, not even because I thought it was bad. I don't know. It just didn't strike me as something that was interesting. I would love to get into that. And maybe next week we'll talk about the Boondock Saints. But that is all we have time for this week because I've got to get this posted. It is technically Thursday. We are in under the... Uh, you know, so go, go have a great, happy, have a happy St. Patrizio day, uh, and tune in this week and you already tuned in this week. If you've made it this far, tune in every week, uh, as long as we keep doing this for all the latest on Silver Linings Playbook and the, the Silver Linings Playbook. I hope you have a great St. Patrick's Day. And until next time, we will see you down the road and Excelsior. He's kind of crazy, she's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is the forest, the other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a silver linings play cast. <laughs>